Welcome to another episode of Religionless Church. I'm your iconoclast in residence and Religionless Church host, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Casper Turkile. Casper is a writer, podcaster, and co-founder of How We Gather, a study on how millennials find and build communities of meaning and belonging. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Joel David Weir. Joel is an indie folk artist from Indiana. You can get connected with both Casper and Joel and their work in the links in the episode description. In the links in the description, you will also find my website, masonmeninga.com, where you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. If religionless church matters to you, there are two ways you can support. First, give the podcast a rating and a review. This not only offers thoughts and evaluations to others considering listening to the podcast, but it also informs me upon what to improve with the podcast. The second way to support is become a patron of my Patreon page. Patreon is a service where supporters financially support creators. With currently three different tiers varying from $1 to $10 a month, you receive respective rewards for supporting my work. Rewards include papers I write, upcoming Religionless Church episode previews, lectures I create, and much more. The links to connect to and support me and my work, including my Patreon page, are all in the episode description. I no longer wish to be your object cause of desire, as I, with my begging rambling, prevent you from your object of desire of this awaiting episode. Therefore, here it is, Religionless Church. Today we have Casper Turkile, and Casper, what would you consider your role with How We Gather? Executive director, founder, the <laughs> resident theologian, what do, what do you consider yourself? Oh, I, I like all of those titles. I mean, really, uh, maybe co-author is the best one, because How, oh, we, I love How we Gather as a project has now spun into the On Being project. Um, so mm-hmm. my, my official job title is uh, the Director of Possibility an executive director of the On Being Impact Lab. Um, and so wow. our How We Gather team is now part, part of that incredible uh, project. Well, there's even more Minneapolis connections with us, right? Exactly. exactly. How about that? Cool. <laughs> so uh, you, you have lots of roles in the world, uh, but who is Casper Turkile to Casper Turkile? <laughs> right now I'm a little sick. So uh, that's, <laughs> that's the, the main thing on my mind. I came down with a cold this week, but... um. Yeah, no, you're, I, I'm very lucky to have kind of different uh, uh, projects in the world. Um, I, I'm from England originally. Uh, okay. I moved to the US about six years ago. I came for graduate school or, originally to do a public policy degree. And then I kept hearing about the Divinity School, which was an unusual step for me because I didn't grow up with any sort of religious background. Oh, okay. um, 
but I was just really fascinated um, in this question of how do people kind of my age and without a, a, a religious community, like where do we find belonging and where do we find our, our meaning or spirituality? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, together with my, my colleague, Angie Thurston, we just started to talk to, you know, tens and then hundreds of people about how that worked out for them. And at one point we were on a call, the two of us with one other person, and uh, we asked them a question and they started saying something exactly word for word of what we had both been thinking. And at that moment we thought, okay, we should write about, we should write about what we're seeing in this wow. kind of change category of community and religion. So, um, that's how, when we wrote how we gather three and a half years ago. And, and since then I've yeah been lucky enough to do various different projects. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's exciting times. So you just alluded into my next question. How did How We Gather begin? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it definitely was something about the connection that I had with Angie. You know, she she came into Divinity School with a spreadsheet of what was called SBNR resources, spiritual but not religious resources. Mm-hmm. But she'd been mapping, um, you know, everything from retreat centers to apps. She'd been living in, in Brooklyn, working in the arts, and uh, she was on Match.com, and everyone she was matched with was like, their religion was SBNR. So she was like, what is this thing? Like, I need to understand. And she was like, oh, I'm an unaffiliated millennial. I didn't know. Um, and I had come to it from uh, a question of um, really kind of social change strategy. I, I've been working as a climate activist and felt frustrated by, you know, just just being limited to, to emails or protests or marches. And I, when I looked in history, I, it seemed that the most successful social movements had, you know, a, a common narrative. People used song and circle and all of these things that religion seemed to be quite good at, but uh, seemed very foreign to me mm. uh, as someone who would have described themselves as an atheist at the time. Um, and so, uh, you know, both of us were coming in with this question and I think something in our, in our friendship just bubbled up in an interesting way. Andrew was the first one to say, we should write something. And I was like, well, let's not make it an academic paper though, because no one reads those. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we, we made just a very simple kind of 24 page booklet um, which incredibly still travels now. We just heard that apparently it's big in Japan, which is wow. very surreal. <laughs> That's impressive. <laughs> but yeah, so we, we started to look at um, how people who, who were outside of traditional religious structures were finding meaning in community. And they were going to places like CrossFit or maker spaces or justice groups, places that would, were ostensibly totally secular. And often mm-hmm. the leaders would have never used spiritual religious language that, to describe what they did. And yet the same things that you would see in congregational life emerged in these communities. Hmm. So um, the pastoral relationship between a leader and the community, for example, people texting their soul cycle instructor on a Sunday at 4 p.m. saying, should I divorce my husband, right? Hmm. Like if you've been trained to teach a spin class, like you were not ready to handle <laughs> some right through, through a big question like that. Um, People, uh, you know, in, in times of loss or in times um, of, of illness, for example, being surrounded by uh, their CrossFit buddies to take them to hospital, to look after the dog, to raise money if they'd been diagnosed with breast cancer. Like the, the, what you would see in a congregation, we saw in these secular communities, but none of those communities had the same theological reflection resources uh, or, or, or kind of, you know, religious community leadership skills that, that mm. one would expect from a pastor. And so, in interviewing the leaders of these secular communities, we, we heard over and over again how they felt very isolated and often lonely in their leadership mm-hmm. and how they felt like they were having to make it up for the first time, that there, you know, no one was there to help them. So we started to convene those leaders together and say, in our language, kind of divinity school language, we think what you're doing is ministry. 
and 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 rather than a sort of negative reaction to that, people were like, "Oh my God, That's tell right. me more." That's like, what it is. What was the impetus for how we gather? What was the thing that you all were noticing bubbling up? I know you've been sort of talking about this, but what was it that was bubbling up that you're that led all of you to say we need to look further into this? Yeah, I I mean I think it was a mix of curiosity and like feeling like I was standing between two worlds and the two worlds didn't know about the other. Hmm. Um I, you know, c- coming into Divinity School, I knew um, where my friends were and what they did and what was important to them, what was important to my life. Um, and stepping into the Divinity School was a very foreign country to some extent. You know, I couldn't have told you the difference between a Methodist and a Presbyterian. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, was I really, I really did not know much at all. Um, and so when we were in the classroom, for example, learning about the you know, 13th century monastic movements in Europe, all I could think about was like, well, this is exactly like the new co-housing like trend that we're seeing, right? Mm. That's happening right now, right? People, you know, seven, 800 years ago, leaving the established kind of structures of the church, um, you know, whether it was the Beguines, you know, w- women at the very forefront of this movement as well, um, people leaving the structure, kind of living together, not always with permission from from the central authorities mm-hmm. um, and wanting to to live and work and pray and 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 be in community together um in ways that felt alive that felt vital and and relevant and um mission oriented and in service of other people um well you see so much happening uh within the co-housing movement now you know people wanting to move away from the structures of like well as you grow older you move into your own little suburban house and you know, you're you're on the road to isolation, as uh, mm. Barbara Kingsolver says, and and that these people are saying, no, I want a different way of life. I want to be together. I want to eat together. You know, at least a couple days a week. Um, and so I, that pattern was always interesting to me to look at the ancient and to look at the emergent and see that there were there was something going on there which was which was more than met the eye. And once you start looking for that, it it's everywhere. You know, the way in which people on Pinterest pull together favorite quotes, for example. Mm-hmm. It's a lot like Lexio Divina, or it's a right. lot like Florilegia, the way in which monks used to take favorite bits of the Psalms and put them together to create their own new textual collection. It's the same thing. Uh, or at least the, the drive to, to engage with text um, meaningfully is, is the same. It's being executed differently. Um, and, and I felt like I was being given this incredible um, toolbox, this incredible tradition to to learn from and to play with, which I felt so many of my my contemporaries had never had never looked for, perhaps because of the, the barriers to entry that are so high with religion, um, or or just did not even know about. Give me a give me a sign. I could see a very traditional person, uh, young or old, uh, but a, a very traditional religious person, hearing what you're having to say about sort of the uh, connections you've been making with Pinterest and Lexio Divina and, 
and those sort of things. And I could see them being very skeptical and very suspicious yeah. about what you're attempting to do to like honor the connection that you're noticing. Um, they really want to meet that with suspicion and, and um, skepticism. What is your response to someone like that that is just tried and true saying that is not Christianity or that is not this religious tradition or, or whatever it might be? I mean, there's, there's a couple of different reactions. One is that, like, it doesn't have to be for them, right? Like, mm. th th these changes are not for everyone, and, and that's fine. Um, if you feel really served by a Sunday morning worship service and a Wednesday night prayer meeting, and, you know, you're, like, what, what the religious offering that we have right now is working for you, good for you. Like, enjoy it. Make the most mm. of it. Uh, it's not working for a whole bunch of people. Um, and I think by now we can safely say, right, it's not just like a new small group ministry or a new pastor or a new whatever, a new like Instagram account that that we need to like save the church as it is. Like the, right. the, the structure of the church that we have now is dying. And that is that is that like that's mm -hmm. that's just happening. And so, um, you know, for, for, a, for a lot of people within denominational life, there's a deep amount of pain and, and grief there. And frankly, for those who've been in leadership, often also shame a sense that they have failed, that they have, you know, been given this tradition and have not been able to pass it on in some way. Um, and it, that's very internalized and personalized in a way that isn't fair. You know, the, the, the structural changes around us in the economy and particularly in technology just mean that we live in a different world than we did 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. And as ever, the culture follows the, the, the shifting landscape of, 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 of technology and of the economy in a way that it always has done. Right. Um, and it's interesting to look across religious boundaries here within Christianity as the dominant religion, certainly in America, um, there's a sense that, and, and with a history of an imperial kind of power mm -hmm. uh, within Christianity, there's a sense that, that Christianity doesn't need to change or it never has changed or that, that there's something everlasting about it. Well, if you look at the conversation that's happening right now within Judaism, there's much more comfort with the fact that Judaism has changed before and it mm. will change again. So, for example, a lot, a lot of Jews talk about the, the fall of the temple uh, right now. So in, in 70 um, CE, I think it was, if I remember. Yep. If I remember Sorry, my history one of those correct. 70s. <laughs> one of those 70s. Um, right, the, 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 the Romans come in and destroy the temple, and Judaism had been a temple-based religion with priests and sacrifices. Mm -hmm. all these things. Um, and uh, one of the preeminent, uh, preeminent scholars at the time uh, smuggles himself out of the city in, in a... Uh, in a coffin. It's a great story. You'll have to check it out at some point. Hmm. But basically asks for permission to set up a, 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 a city of study, a school. And that's where the rabbinic tradition within Judaism starts. So hmm. Judaism lives, but it has totally changed because the right. world changed. And so I think that's the moment that we're in. It's less, uh, 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 you know, some people compare this moment to the Reformation. I, re I really think it's more than that um, because it's, it's a reimagining of what is religion for. Um, you know, in the Jewish context, for the last, you know, thousands of years, Jew Judaism has so much been about survival um, and transmission. Um, the sense that, like, you know, we are being chased out by pogroms, we're being exterminated in death camps, like, to, to survive is the goal. And now, mm -hmm. where in the US, of course, anti-Semitism is still rife, but there is a different level of threat, where most young Jews don't feel at all, uh, you know, worried about their, their mm -hmm. Jewish identity. And so they're not attracted to these messages of, of, you know, 
every, all that matters is that you light candles on Friday evening and that you claim your Judaism and it has to look like this, right? Support Israel, blah, 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 blah. A lot of young Jews think that's not important to me. Like I actually want something different. Um, you know, I, I want ritual to help me make sense of the life transitions that I'm in, or I want to like put my phone away and have an experience of rest and calm. And so to kind of translate that back into the Christian uh, context, mm-hmm. you know, our obsession with, with the focus on the congregation or a particular language or, mm. um, you know, the, the, the church is, uh, uh, basically you, you can name anything that people struggle with. Right. And the reason why it's there. And often the reason that made that useful at one point is now the very reason why it's no longer mm. as, mm-hmm. as meaningful. And it's not as if there's not problems that the church could solve, right? In, in a culture where we all feel like the only thing that makes us valuable is our economic productivity. In, in a, a moment of hyper, um, you know, rates of depression and anxiety, like there's so much that the, the church can do and, and in pockets really does. Um, but it has to be willing to let go of all of its preconceptions about language and frameworks and the way things are done and what it means to be Christian that I think... Um, the, the people who have done that the most are a, a, a incredible collection of Catholic nuns in their 80s mm. and 70s mm-hmm. who have never had power within their institution, right, as women within the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and who have done the spiritual work to come to terms that their expression of religious life is dying, but they know that the, the, in their language that call from God of a, of a radical response to the gospel um, is alive and well. It just looked really different. Mm-hmm. And finally, I'd say, Mason, I think that's actually a question of faith, mm-hmm. right? Like, do you actually believe enough? Like, will you trust enough that, that, that this transition is holy? That, that, for me, is the question. Or are you mm-hmm. going to cling to what you know? Right, as just only being holy. Exactly. Yeah. What was your overall general finding in your research with how we gather? So a lot of focus in religious research right now is, is a story of kind of doom and gloom, right? Like right. seminaries are closing, three and a half thousand churches close every year on average. Uh, people are, are, are less likely to go to what all the things. Right. Our store, our research is really focused on the story of hope and possibility. So where mm-hmm. are people gathering? Like, what are they doing? If they're not going to church, why are they going to these salons? Why are they starting double Dutch meetup groups? Why? And, and what does it look like? What are people doing? Well, it turns out, the same things happen in these places that might happen in a congregation, right? So I, I think when what we pay attention to grows. <laughs> so when, when you start to look at the, the, the stories of hope and, and, and possibility within new communities, you know, places like the sanctuaries in DC, a multiracial arts community with soul that uses, you know, um, the creative arts to, to empower justice movements in the, in the, in the, the metro area. Um, and, and it's led by uh, an ordained minister, but who has no desire for his community, that network that's built mm-hmm. around this, mm-hmm. this, this exciting thing that's happening within their midst. Um, you know, it, it's inherently multi-faith and no faith, right? Like the whole community right. by design is mixed. And I think one of the trends that we've seen more and more is that perhaps the future of spiritual community is going to have a different boundary of belonging. So it's less about identity or what you believe, right? Like, are we all Methodists? Are we all Lutherans? Right. Are we Muslim? Um, and instead, it's going to be like, are we committed in relationship uh, enough to travel together? Um, and so, uh, or, or in the case of the sanctuaries, what art can we make together that will hold us in this process of creativity through which we build relationship and mm-hmm. join one another, um, you know, 
in, in and, and I will join you all the way in your Lutheran liturgy if you will join me all the way in my in my Muslim prayer, right? Like mm. there's a generosity of spirit that yep. we're seeing more and more. Um, so I think I think that kind of diversity of of of, uh, of identities is definitely a theme that's happening at the at the edges of these communities. And and the other thing is ironically that among so many of these secular communities, um, they might they might start out very resistant to religion, um, but often you know someone some someone ends up in a situation of deep suffering. Maybe maybe their mother passes away, or mm-hmm. they have a baby. It might be something very joyful. But there are, there are these life transitions where big questions get asked about who I am, whose I am, what is life all about, um, and in those and in those moments, people go looking for answers that religion has always dealt with. And so um, there's a real opportunity, I think, to, to, to be relevant again um, to, to people in those moments. You were the place that I could hide When they say that you are broken Break my arms just to show them Break my heart to live for you What was a finding in your research that surprised you and your team? That you had no idea or had any expectation that you'd end up finding that? (laughs) Well, the irony was that we wrote How We Gather really for the secular audience. We wanted to talk to those, um, you know, those secular communities, the CrossFits, the Soul Cycles, the the Afroflow yogas. Um, and the, the really surprising thing to us was that suddenly we were hearing from all these religious institutions. <laughs> we had not prepared <laughs> for that at all. Um, and, and I think the really beautiful thing is that, um, you know, we wouldn't have engaged those, institution, engaged those institutions if we didn't think there was value for these new communities to learn from those institutions. So one of the things that we spent a lot of time doing is investing in getting to know elders. Um, we did a sort of elder matchmaking pilot where at one of our gatherings, we had 80 of these millennial community leaders come together. And we said, who here would want an elder to accompany them over six months? Um, so not quite a spiritual director, not quite a mentor, not quite a coach, but just someone to witness and, and to celebrate you. And over time to ask maybe some probing questions um, and, and maybe to offer some practical help of, you know, how do you do this or do mm-hmm. that? And the, the overwhelming response um, we had over uh, over 40 people say, yes, I want that. And who did this kind of six month pilot um, where every month they got on the phone with a wise elder, often from a different tradition, right? So a young, a young Methodist minister with an older Jewish rabbi or a secular person with an Episcopal priest. Um, and the, the really surprising thing to me was that it wasn't an act of service across generations. It was really something that served both. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's something that's been more and more interesting to me as we, as we, follow this theme of loneliness and isolation is that the biggest thing older people want um, is to be useful. And we've got all of these younger people who are desperate for accompaniment. And so there's this real opportunity to build kind of symbiotic relational connection where, mm. where, um, where both of them are, are, are fed through that relationship um, in a way that's been really beautiful to, to learn about and to watch in the context of our work. That's wonderful. One thing, uh, a term that you mentioned earlier was the spiritual but not religious term. As I've, uh, I was a youth ministry major, and so I grew, kind of went through with that uh, training. Uh, and in that training, we 
read a book called Almost Christian, mm. where it really sort of, um, I, I don't know if the author really intentionally tried to, but it, in my reading of it was it really sort of came off of like spiritual but not religious is a problem that we must address. Mm. But it seems that your project seems to embrace that like, oh, no, like these are legitimate people with legitimate concerns. Um, and that that label that they're using for themselves is not an apathetic label. It's right. not they're not using that out of apathy to just sort of like cop themselves out from having to identify religiously. What you're right. noticing is this is a legitimate spiritual identity. Um, and so what? What is your response to those that really see the spiritual but not religious identity as a problem rather than a legitimate spiritual identity? Well, that's interesting. And I think I, I might give you an answer that <laughs> is different from what you expect. I don't know. The, the first thing is to say that so much of the language in this field is a language of negation, right? Mm. Spiritual but not religious, the nuns, none of the above, right. nothing in particular, atheist, agnostic, um, which to me, points to the fact that there isn't necessarily a, uh, a, a kind of wanting to stand behind something and say, yes, I am spiritual, but not religious. But it's a deep problem with the religious institutions that people feel like they can't be part of them. Mm -hmm. In fact, they've been told they can't, right? Like right. through various, whether it's around gays or women or whatever it else it, it is, or, or the politics or, or, or just the, the, the format of, of congregational life. Um, and so people are left in a sort of kind of spiritual homelessness often. Mm -hmm. Like I'm unwilling to say the Apostles' Creed, for example, and so therefore like I can't be part of this community. One, right. one example. Um, I think we're in a period of, of transition between, uh, we're in an in-between time, right? Between these kind of core identities of, well, I'm Catholic or, or I'm Jewish. Now people are born often into interfaith families or their mm. practice is X, their community is Y. And they were raised with Z. And so like, what do you do? Or they're married to, to right. A, and the, but the, their, their daughter goes to a B school, right? Like our identities are becoming more and more mixed. And so we don't yet have categories that really help us feel whole uh, or, or fully uh, ourselves if we claim a category, right? Because if, if my husband's Hindu and I'm claiming my Presbyterian uh, identity and I, and I bring my Hindu partner to the Presbyterian church, there's part of me that feels like, oh, like, yeah. right, he's, he's, he's by, by definition outside in some way. Um, and so in our, in our latest report, Care of Souls, we try and kind of slice the pie differently. And so instead of the traditional religious categories, we try to look at what are the functions that are happening in these communities, right? right. There's a gathering function, there's a healing function, there's mm -hmm. an elder function. Um, and it, I, I'm, I don't know if that's what's going to work in the end, but I'm interested to see how those categories are going to shift. Because I, I'm not necessarily sure that like to be spiritual but not religious is a category that we want to lift up as what, what should be mm. out there or that is complete. Because often what happens as you, as you personalize the identity, right, my, my individual mix of, of Hindu, Presbyterian, and a Buddhist meditation practice, mm -hmm. it also isolates because I have no one else who is, is exactly like me. Right. And so yeah. I, we, we see this kind of, uh, uh, I, I don't want to say it's causal, but it's certainly, I think, correlated that we see this like massive decline in religious identity, language, and practice, and a massive increase in the sense of isolation and loneliness. Hmm. And so 
I think what we need to find is is new identities or new structures of community where people feel like they can fully belong, which which might mean we lose that language of spiritual but not religious. It's certainly a legitimate place to be in one's spiritual life. That I 100% agree with. I'm not sure it's a place where we should want to be. If you sing, I'll sing along Today we have Joel, and Joel is the instigator behind the music you're hearing on this episode. And uh, Joel, you yeah. uh, you have like a I, I love your dynamic that you have with, I mean, you have, it's a very folky kind of indie type music, right? Um, right. I, I love that you keep it really lo-fi, at least from what oh. I've, I'm hearing. I, I don't know if your past releases have been like that, <laughs> but uh, with your 818 uh, or mm-hmm. 818, uh, mm-hmm. this, your ra- latest release, I yeah. love the, the lo-fi vibe to it. I think there's like an authenticity that I think... Um, I mean, genuinely, or, or generally, uh, folk music already has that authentic piece to it. Sure. But sure. then it can actually be subtracted or um, suppressed when you really make it really highly produced. And, yeah. And so I really appreciate the fact that there's kind of this lo-fi element. It seems intentional. Was that was that an intentional piece to this to this album, or were you just like, yeah, I got an iPhone, I'll record it with that, <laughs> and. Uh, that's all yeah. I got working for me. It was, um, so I've done, I've recorded, I guess, home, home recordings in the past. Uh, I've done studio records too. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, like, like in a couple of years ago, I was, I did an experiment to try to kind of break through my, uh, I, I have a problem with procrastination. Okay. So uh, like, like meaning that, uh, I would get an idea for some songs, you know, or, or an entire record. And then I would think, well, when I, when, you know, when I get into the studio or when I can get a band together, you know, then I'll, then I'll record it. And mm. I just, I just got tired of that because I want And I also, I really love to me, when I think about records, I really love it's ones that they ca- they, they capture the essence of the very moment of something. And, mm. and I, and I've felt like, the kind the songs that people have really resonated with of mine in the past haven't been the ones that I felt like, Oh yeah, you know, like I, you know, did, you know, really nailed that in the studio or whatever, but it was like some, you know, kind of a rough recording or a live recording or something that, that, that people said, yeah, I, that was really honest. And so I, um, as much as I love, like, like the, I, I mean, I almost call myself a, a I'm like a reluctant folk singer, meaning that, that, uh, they're like, <laughs> they're like, I, the music, I mean, I love, I love a lot of folk, you know, Woody Guthrie and, and Bob, and Bob Dylan and, mm-hmm. and John Prine. I mean, they're, they're all heroes of mine, but I also love like, you know, in my head, I have all the, uh, kind of, you know, bands like Radiohead or, I mean, the national is yep. a favorite of mine where just these constructed, just incredible, like, like pieces. And, uh, and so in my head, that's that. But then when people talk to me, they're, you know, in the end, I, I think 
the thing I do is I, I write songs that communicate something honestly from the heart and people mm-hmm. like that. So, so, um, so with, with 818 and actually it began two years ago when I decided that one week I would, um, I would, uh, literally go into a closet in my house set up one mic one guitar and i would write a song a day and record it that night and not not overthink it just like just do it mm-hmm. and in the end i i like the record i like the recordings enough that i released it and that was actually that was an ep i did a few years ago called closet songs okay and um and for 818 though um actually have a studio record in the in the can i guess it's it's sort of being mixed now but i was dealing with a lot of um i wanted to process through some grief that from a couple of losses in the past few years okay and it started with an ipad on a on a porch <laughs> and i recorded halloween halloween eagles and i and and the urgency and the immediacy of it really uh it, it i felt better about it than some of the things we had done in the studio mm. and so and so i uh i just went with it and then that just it just kind of the floodgates opened and uh 818 came out and it's a yeah i mean it's a it's a grief record and it's a it's it's just the low the low finest was was on purpose it was i wanted to capture a moment yeah um and that that's that's at the that's a heart of it what are some upcoming projects uh maybe there's yeah some albums or songs in the works, uh, maybe a tour or shows. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. A- any upcoming projects you have in the works that uh, you're looking forward to? Yeah. Um, oh yeah, definitely. I'm, uh, I'll be playing a lot of shows um, in the spring. Uh, it'll, be, it'll start pretty much in May. Uh, I'm okay. working with a, I'm working with a new, uh, with kind of a development group, Spark Joy Music, out of Indianapolis, and okay. um, I'm super super excited to work with them because um, they're they're gonna get me on a tour Midwest and then um, probably East Coast, um, plus just the places I've been uh, that I usually play around mm-hmm. here. Um, as far as a record, yeah, I do have a I've got a a record I did with a with a full band with my band that and uh, it's been in the sort of in, it's being mixed right now it's taken a while to get done mm-hmm. um but i'm excited about that probably probably summer of this year and okay. then uh and then 818 i'm going to release i don't have a, there's no cd version of it yet or, or hard copy okay. um but i'm going to release a version of it with some extra extra tracks with some extra artwork from a uh actually a um kind of a comic book artist that I, that I know okay. Gabe Wilson, who's, who's uh, taking each of the songs and doing a, a sort of a, a comic book rendition of each of the yeah. songs that tells the story. So uh, that'll be coming out uh, probably February or March. And I'm, I'm really excited about that just because I think it'll kind of, it'll take the, the record kind of to another step. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Joel. This has been a wonderful conversation. I, I love hearing like the rich theology that's behind this. I, I like hearing uh, the 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 while it's grief, uh, but nonetheless, life experience behind yeah yeah a, sure behind your music. Um, and and you're able to really capture that well in its sound. Uh, like I mentioned before, with your with the lo-fi quality, I, I think there I think there's something to, to be said about that capturing really what I think 
you were hoping to capture in that album and i think you did well i appreciate that thank you thanks for thanks for uh, wanting to talk to me about this Bonhoeffer's religion, this Christianity, by any chance? Indeed. Yes, I had awesome. a wonderful professor who made me read that one summer. <laughs> Lovely. That's, a, that's yeah. a great professor. Um, <laughs> so what, what are ways you believe your research reveals what Bonhoeffer may have been getting at with religionless Christianity? Well, you know, I think what Bonhoeffer saw already was, was the failure of the Christian, I, I, don't, I don't want to necessarily say doctrine but but certainly the failure of of you know like how how could this country fall into the hands of nazism if it truly was christian like i i I think he saw the failures of the church in a way whereby he he was open to imagining a new christian life Mm -hmm. um and and i think that's again what these nuns see is that like you know they they have lived their lives in in the greatest dedication you can imagine um, you know, a, a, a vow, a vow for life of poverty, mm-hmm. chastity, and obedience. And um, something we're working on right now, actually, with with these nuns, is a is a sort of year long formation offering for the twenty first century to to try and draw on the best of monastic life uh, uh, and small group methodology to help people um, actually end up making a vow in some way after a year. Um, so to kind of prepare huh. themselves to, to make that kind of commitment. So. I, I definitely see elements of, of kind of Bonhoeffer's uh, imagination alive and well. I mean, he was still looking at all of this very much from within a Christian framework. Right. And, and I wake up on Mondays and think, yep, that, that can work. And then on Tuesdays, I'm like, yeah, but maybe we need to like just completely, <laughs> like maybe we need to forget the language of Jesus. Like, mm. you know, like is, the, is that too triggering? Is that, is that story still can we still work with that story or does it need to kind of lie fallow for some time? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know. And frankly, I think it'll be different for different people. Um, but uh, yeah, I was, I was reading some more texts from the fifties and sixties recently. Um, Honest to God is this wonderful kind of Anglican. Uh, um, really, it's a sort of manifesto. Who, uh, who is that by again? I've heard of that. I think, God, is it John Robinson? Is it that Robinson? sounds about right. Uh, I read it a couple right. months ago. But it was amazing to 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 see the the boldness and the confidence with which hmm. these you know theologians sixty seventy years ago were were stepping into the fray. You know Abraham Joshua Heschel as well, and uh, others in the Jewish world uh, doing the same thing. Um, but you know our anxiety of this moment, I feel so much more confident about. Hmm. I think like mm-hmm. that that I think we I think we can trust people's innate goodness <laughs> and and our desire for mm-hmm. connection and for meaning um uh, uh, and if we're in relationship with tradition you know that like there's a difference between um gosh who was this i'm really testing my knowledge now on a friday morning um <laughs> See, uh, divinity school really comes in handy right now i know i know god wait who uh, the gethsemane the monk thomas 
Merton talks about the difference between um, kind of a, you know a healthy and, and, and an unhealthy tradition. Um, and and it, tradition is not simply doing things that we've done before, right? Like mm -hmm. it's not like we're just reading the text. There's always a talking to and with and back to the text. Um, that's that's the tradition. And so what what the what we physically do is going to change. Like that's fundamental in in in, in my theological assumption. And I think you know any anyone who who disagrees with that has to look at where their own spiritual and religious practices and and language comes from because it's all somewhere in history right like so that 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 sense that things are always changing is something i think i've just become much more comfortable with mm -hmm. and they will again right <laughs> that that seems to be i mentioned before with a question that there's people that are going to meet this with a lot of skepticism uh they're, yeah. they're really rooted into their own traditions and and so because of that, they meet with a lot of skepticism and it, what i've noticed in those conversations with those those folks yeah. is there just seems to be kind of a lack of faith about their faith, right? That like their faith can withhold and withstand yeah. all sorts of changes throughout all sorts of different cultures, throughout all sorts of different time, right? Um, I remember back when I was, I went to a small Christian college, uh, yeah. actually a Dutch reform school. Um, Wait, was it Calvin College? Uh, no, I, it was no. in Iowa. It's called Northwestern College, part of the RCA. Cool. Uh, um, and I remember it was one of my first classes, my freshman year, I'm wide-eyed, freshman coming out of a really conservative Christian background. Yeah. And I remember my, my, uh, it was like a, it was about a, a course about the Bible. And Beautiful. I remember my professor saying, here's what you need to know about this text. It was like sort of at the end of the course, you know, he's like totally ripped us all apart with like a way of understanding the Bible. And he, yeah. so he sort of sits us down and he's like, this is what I want you to know about this. Yeah. This book has been around for thousands of years, thousands yeah. of years. And there's a, and it's spanned all sorts of different cultures throughout all sorts of different thousands of years. Yeah. And we're still thinking that it's an important thing to talk about and to learn and to read. Yeah. And it certainly still is forming the faith of many people. Yeah. Despite all of its changes, despite all the questioning it's gone through, it yeah. still seems to remain. Um, it still seems to remain. There's all sorts of different ways to understand it that have changed and whatnot. But there's still this text that we are reading, and it's still inspiring and impacting lots of people's lives. So we can we can have like faith in that, that like there's going to be something that holds. It just might not be exactly the way that you want it to be held, but it's still going to hold. Um, and uh, that we can have faith in. And exactly. it, se it certainly seems that your work is is really starting to, to touch into that and and is noticing that and is is revealing to others that it will be okay. Like things might, things are going to change, not even might change. Things are going totally. to change, but totally. at the end of the day, there's still, people still are going to gather in ways that they find meaning and inspiration and they're going to borrow and adopt and find themselves in certain traditions. And uh, that we can probably be sure of that that will Absolutely. continue to happen. Absolutely. And, and the really, you know, this is, I think, the kind of the jujitsu move that 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 gets me excited. I had exactly this conversation with a Jewish friend who's a rabbi, and um, you know, he was kind of frustrated with the with the way his 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 synagogue had been at work, and so he'd left that job. And mm. um, he was like, "What is he? What is what is even some what what makes something Jewish?" Um, and uh, you know, he he talked about like going to do tough mudder races, right, where you kind of like 
it's like an <laughs> obstacle course with a group of friends. Yeah. You don't finish until the whole group is finished. It's actually, and there's all of these kind of like ritual moments of like shouting mm-hmm. back and forth. It's actually super fascinating. But, um, you know, he said, uh, we were having this conversation at the, at the end of the conversation. We're like, well, what makes something Jewish? And it was like, if you say it's Jewish, right? Like, it's wh- kind of what it comes down to. <laughs> like, if you if you go for a run with four friends every week, like, what's to say that's not Jewish, right? Like, so <laughs> um, I think there's something about like ha- having the sense of of permission that is really beautiful right now. And I, I, I think for so long that sense of of religious or spiritual permission is being held. It's kind of being bundled up within these institutions, and for very many reasons, these institutions have struggled um uh, and and are struggling and so the more the more spiritual permission people feel uh, and and through that i hope the more that they look at tradition and they find the things that are useful because there is so much that it's like it's like a gold mine waiting for us to 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 wander through it and find the the most beautiful things or the orchard you know and just to pick the the juiciest apples that are helpful for this moment um the 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 better off i think we all will be um but that yeah there's a there's a confidence that I that I think people are developing now to say mm-hmm. like yeah this is authentic and it's good enough and if I want it to be Christian I'm going to call it Christian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Last question: How can listeners get connected with you and your work? Well, if you want to read the reports, uh, they're all available for download at howwegather.org and just click on the button reports. Um, or if you want to kind of think through questions like this more often, you can download the On Being podcast. It's a beautiful weekly mm-hmm. podcast. Hosted by my colleague uh, and boss Krista Tippett, um, which is boss. On- How many I people know. get to say that? Not many people get to say that's my boss. <laughs> it's pretty cool, um, and that's at onbeing.org. And uh, I, I write a little newsletter every week where I reflect on questions like this. You can sign up at casper.tk.com/newsletter. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Casper. This has been Thanks. a wonderful conversation. <laughs> you bet. All the best. back porch waiting for us don't you know we never really asked for much oh say squirrel eating only what the good lord provides surviving the winter on what he has if that episode left you hanging and you're wanting more from casper and joel you can find links to connect to them and their work in the episode description. Again, you can also connect to me through my website, masonmeniga.com. There you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. Also, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, if religionless church matters to you, support by giving a rating and review, and by becoming a patron of my Patreon page. Thank you for listening to Religionless Church. I send you out with this. May the divine bless you with doubt and keep you disrupted. May the divine make the divine's face of infinitude shine upon you and show you graciousness to your own finitude. May the divine lift up the divine's countenance of justice upon you and give you whole unsatisfaction now and forever. So be it. It's all about losing people I love And the way I get through it I wanna give up Oh, say squirrel
Good Lord provide